Welcome to Inside Parliament. It's a weekly catch-up to chat about the stories that we've been doing this week. I'm Jessica Much and this is Katie Bradford. We're going to be having a little chat and catch-up with you today. We're coming to you live from the legendary Beehive studio and hopefully that will give us some nice inspiration today to talk Shorter about Shorter Easter doing. week, but it's still been busy. All condensed into a few short days, so it's been good. We've been talking a lot about cars, actually, um, this week, which And usually for us, so Jess and I, this is not something we usually spend a lot of time talking about. No, but cars. perhaps more specifically, <laughs> um, fuel tax. So let's have a look at the story that I did earlier this week. Charles Miller has a driving Miss Daisy franchise in East Auckland. He does a thousand trips a month ferrying the elderly and disabled. To the doctor, to the hairdresser, to the supermarket. The government is looking at adding to the nationwide fuel tax of between 9 and 12 cents a litre over the next three years. We will have to pass on some of the increase, but it's also unquestioned that we'll have to absorb some ourselves. Ambulance service St John's told One News it'll have a dramatic impact on it too. It drives more than 3 million kilometres a year. And it won't just affect petrol prices. All supermarket goods, all your whiteware, about 12% of that price component is actually in the road transport uh, factor. So you increase the road taxes, you'll put the price up on all goods. The fuel tax will add to the government's pot of money. It's promising that'll go on making roads safer throughout the country. More money for rail and public transport. We need to give families and commuters choices. Right now, they don't have those, they're stuck in congestion. Auckland drivers are set to be slapped twice with this new national fuel tax and the planned regional fuel tax from the council. It's going to cost less than the equivalent of a cup of coffee a week. And actually, it's going to allow us to make some pretty amazing investments in the transport system. This isn't just a new tax, it's a significant new tax. So what do Auckland drivers think? I think Auckland has to make a contribution, um, but the country does as well, you know, because if Auckland's successful, the country's successful as well. I think that's fair and reasonable. I think as long as those uh, taxes go back on improving the infrastructure on the roads and public transport. I travel 100 k's a day, so it's way too high for me already. When National was in government, it raised fuel taxes a number of times, but says it wasn't going to this year. Now the Labour government is set to make it happen. It was interesting the way that that story came up because we heard that it was going to be on road safety late on the Tuesday afternoon, went along to postcab and then this came forward as a suggestion. And it's a bit of a hard sell for a government, a 9 to 12 cent um, effectively a tax, an excise levy on top of the fuel tax already. And when you've promised no new taxes to suddenly spring this on people. Yeah, and that was what, that was one of the really interesting points that came out of this because Labor obviously campaigned and said no new taxes but always said that those excise duties on your fuel, on tobacco and on alcohol... Were always up for grabs. Yeah, always adjusted by governments from both sides. So... It's just a hard thing to say, you know, oh, don't worry, everyone, no new taxes, but then there's this technicality in it that, oh, no, that doesn't apply here. So National, of course, seized on it and jumped on it. It's a nice, easy it's hit, an easy for, hit them. for them to do. They've said that they, while they got advice on increasing some of these taxes, they weren't planning to do it. We'll never know if they would have or not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a benefit they have, I guess. But, but technically, Labour is still correct yes. that it isn't a new tax that already exists, et cetera, et cetera. So just one of those things that 
there's two ways of looking at it. You can either say as a member of the public, great, we're going to get safer roads and public transport, that's great for me. Or as a motorist, um, oh no, I don't want to be paying more for petrol. And for most people, it's a bit of both. Yeah, and also the wider debate around, this is all about transport priorities, right? Where should that money be going? Should it be going on those roads of national significance? Should it be going on regional roads? Should it be going on public transport? There's a limited pool of money and uh, priorities have to be made. Um, and and I guess a lot of work had been done on those RONs and... and roads of national significance. <laughs> on the RONs. And so, so uh, that's where a lot of people, a lot of communities, had you know come to accept that these roads were going to head, welcome them, and now they might not be going to head. If you think, uh, for instance, of the Puhoi to Welsford Road, which uh, a lot of people need uh, in terms of the economic benefits of being able to get more people up north and so forth, that's huge. But if you can get better rail up north and get the freight off the roads and onto the rail, that would help immensely as well. And this is the sort of thing that's been weighed up here. Yeah, and I think it's different for Aucklanders as well. I've been living in Auckland for the last yeah. couple of years, and the Waterview Tunnel has been helped held up as a huge success that makes getting around the city noticeably quicker. Yeah. yeah. And so I think things like that, people think, oh, that's great, those one-off big expensive roading projects do make a difference. The Labour government have said, okay, that's that's good that National did that. They were very expensive. We're going to spend it in other areas. And road safety was one of their priorities. Now, coming off the back of the Easter weekend when we had a terrible road toll, um, the two did... The clash. timing yeah. seemed to seem to, work and they for weren't them. helped by this international report that came out suggesting that the road speed limit be reduced to seventy k's an hour. Now that's something that no government was proposing. Mm. This is an international report that came out. The timing was really bad for the government in that sense because it did confuse the message. It's confused people. It's made people think that the fuel taxes are going to go up and the road toll's going to be the road speed limit's going to be decreased. And Not that many people like being told you can only go seventy kilometres or an hour. thirty kilometres an hour in some yeah. places. So yeah. although having driven around a bit on Easter it actually wouldn't some people do need to drive at seventy Ks an hour. Mm. <laughs> well and and I guess if you get into trouble you may need your airbag, which seems quite yeah. nicely did you like and that? To, yes and yeah. into another part of your car. Let's have a look at the track from this week. Um, this is probably something that's been a long time coming. Those defective airbags could cost someone their life. The inflators on these faulty Takata airbags have a defect that can explode, propelling shrapnel into drivers or passengers. Ooh. That's killed 23 people and injured more than 230 worldwide. The risk was too high for us to sit there and do nothing. There's been no injuries here, but 50,000 car owners now have 18 months to get their airbags replaced. The scale of this recall is unprecedented. It's a significant problem and a significant issue. It requires a lot of coordination and it is not something that we as an industry can manage by ourselves. A voluntary recall has been around for five years, but many drivers are unaware if they are affected. No idea. I don't know if it has it on the car. If I'm driving a car that's uh, potentially dangerous with airbags that aren't working, I certainly have a fear for that and as well as my family. Affected cars are listed on the website www.recalls.gov.nz and if you do have an affected airbag, you'll soon get a letter in the mail. We may not have the part yet, particularly for the non-alpha type, um, and when we do, they then get a second letter that says, we have the part, please bring it in. The cost of the part and the cost of labour for replacing that part is met by the distributor. And there may be a delay caused by a lack of mechanics or even parts. Imports of any cars with the airbags will be stopped, but the Motor Industry Association has been frustrated at the lack of action. I met with senior officials within NZTA early this year 
uh, and it was the first time in five years that I managed to get to talk to them about the subject. Simon Bridges, a former transport minister, denies his government put people's safety at risk. The government of the day didn't do anything other than accept the official advice that we've got. The motor industry wants the government to go further and pull affected cars off the road. The minister isn't ruling a ban out. We're monitoring and we'll watch it along as we go. So a monitoring group will be set up to ensure everyone complies with the recall and people are being urged to act fast. So the big question of course around this is why on earth did this take so long for us to come to the party? Bear in mind Australia um, only introduced their compulsory recall a month ago, just over a month ago, so they took a lot longer than some countries as well. But the, f- what was interesting yesterday was the clear frustration from the Motor Industry Association about how long this has taken and they basically felt ignored by the previous government. Um, now Simon Bridges on his part said as former Transport Minister he wasn't, you know, he did everything he that was suggested to him, he just went off the advice he had at the time uh, and and this is um, you know if, if you've got these cars with these airbags you'd probably rightly be concerned that New Zealand has taken this long to take this step. The thing that interested me as well is this voluntary recall that they said oh no no if you want to you can bring it in. Most people didn't know about it and no. that's the whole point until yeah. you tell people and inform people and alert people whether it's um, through the media to pass on to the public. It's hard to expect people to know. To actually go in. And I thought one thing, there's a whole lot of problems that may arise. And one of the things they raised yesterday is actually that they one of the big problems is that you're going to be getting the parts in time. And so so you may get a letter telling you you need to take your car in, but then you'll get another letter saying, actually, no, the part's not available yet. So you have to wait for the part to come in. Then you have to get a time with your local technician to go in and do it. It takes up to two hours, depending on your car. They have to have the people available. There may be a shortage of mechanics. There's a shortage of parts. So actually, it's not as simple as just ringing up and saying, hey, can I bring my car in before work tomorrow morning? I guess the only done. people who are going to be happy with this announcement are perhaps the mechanics that... Well, assuming they can then get the money back from the distributors I mean that's where it has to come that they you know the you, you the car owners don't have to pay the government doesn't pay uh, the government has put uh, says that this, this monitoring group they've set up will be monitoring it very closely to check that people are bringing their cars and that the industry is doing what they're supposed to do they're putting a ban on new imports of any cars with these airbags so that monitoring group will need to look at this carefully and if in 18 months time there hasn't been an improvement uh, they, they aren't ruling out looking at things such as banning people from even driving these cars because you have to think couldn't this be part of your warrant right you take your car and if you've got all these airbags they replace it then that seems mm. like a simple way of doing it if you don't get your airbag replaced you fail your warrant did you check out your car no, I don't think I've got one. Do you? I don't know. I didn't check yet. I will. I, I have to confess. To I have to confess. I actually got a recall notice on a part on my car a couple of years ago, and I never took it in. And <gasps> I'm one of those people who it wasn't an airbag. Uh, but actually, I did think it was interesting yesterday that they were saying that they send multiple letters out in these recall situations. I only ever got one letter, and I've mm. never heard anything since. Yeah. So I'm I guess there'll sure. be a lot of people. Um, like us, or like me, perhaps, that should probably check that out. And yeah, I think, I, I think my car's a bit too old. <laughs> You've got a new account. <laughs> we've, we've got um, a special feature that we want to show you this week um, that was shown in 1987 um, in when SOEs effectively were born. So have a look at this. All the trappings of a party were there as preparations were made for Lands and Survey Department staff to tonight see out the old public service in style. When tomorrow dawns, their department and six other government departments will be no more.
For many, this is a cause for celebration, although there's a more serious side. The changes affect about 60,000 public servants, but while most will work for the new corporations, the State Services Commission estimates nearly 4,000 have already opted out or will lose their jobs tomorrow. The architects of the shake-up, the government held a press conference to promote the changes and promised taxpayers an increased return on their investment and a better standard of living. Six months on, the benefits of corporatisation will be assumed. They won't be celebrated, but the pains of the past will be put behind and people will be very positive about their future. The government's public relations machine rumbled on today, and the analogy of pirates with sharp knives may not have been lost on some of the public servants at the new Ministry of Forestry's launch. The ministry's one of several new small and streamlined government agencies, which also start business tomorrow. Like the corporations, they're determined to dispel images of inefficiency in the public sector. According to a majority of what I read, I'll be at a helm of a ship which has the speed wobbles, and it's run by a bunch of public servants who have no idea of what the world, real world is about. I can assure you, nothing is further from the truth. Behind the scenes, the government and heads of the new corporations have been rushing to finalise interim agreements over the billions of dollars of assets which will be managed by the new corporations. The Airways Corporation was the second to be signed, and negotiations are continuing as tomorrow's deadline looms closer. That was just before April Fool's Day 1987, so, you know, a week, 30 or so years ago. Uh, the same week, 30 or so years ago. And speaking of SOEs, Radio New Zealand, back in the spotlight again. Returning to right the wrongs. Not great, but there you go. Not great, because last time Radio New Zealand came to Parliament, it vehemently denied a breakfast meeting between RNZ manager Carol Hirschfeld and the minister responsible for RNZ was pre-arranged. Turns out it was. I feel embarrassed. Embarrassed because it's now been revealed Carol Hirschfeld lied four times. I remember um, both Mr Griffin and Ms Thompson um, flicking me off almost as if, oh, that was just a very simple breakfast. We both feel very foolish. RNZ's now released a timeline of events. Richard Griffin says when the story flared up two weeks ago, the minister's office told him not to comment publicly. I was gobsmacked, quite honestly. I would call that interference. The minister said that didn't happen. There's also been a scrap between the chairman and minister over a voicemail message. Mr Griffin maintains it was suggested he write a letter rather than front up. I would interpret it as um, a pretty strong suggestion. I received advice, I was relaying that advice and my main concern was to have the record corrected. Richard Griffin was asked to play the voice message for the committee. He said no. Now the committee and One News have put in a formal request for its release. So how has the minister handled this? I've handled it to the best of my ability. She's apologised for that and certainly learnt from it as well. Richard Griffin used to work for former National Prime Minister Jim Bolger. As former Prime Minister would say, let's just get back to business. Before that, he'll have to release the voice recording. It was quite a colourful and slightly combative at times um, appearance. Usually select committees, um, and being perhaps uh, unkind, are a little um, dragging and slow. This was not. This was fairly punchy um, and it was just interesting to hear them lay it out from their perspective and some of the discrepancies with what the Minister um, feels and what they feel as well. But um, Richard Griffin definitely um, showed his years and years of experience in the... Um, in both politics and the media. Yeah, because he um, 
he definitely was not a dull person to watch for 45 minutes. I think the last time I've seen a select, seen a select committee that interesting was probably when Kim.com and John Key faced off yeah. uh, at select committee. That was a number of years ago now. Normally, yeah, they're certainly not like that. I think coming out of that, though... Claire Curran still has questions to answer. And we'll yeah. see those developments, I think, possibly over the next couple of days. The Select Committee has now asked to hear that voicemail message that Claire Curran left on Richard Griffin's phone about his Select Committee uh, appearance. That was a silly move on her part. Why she should never she should never have called him and left that. There's no you know. question that she should have stayed out of it. Yes. And the Prime Minister made that clear in her comments. Um, and I think in hindsight, the Minister would agree with that as well. She was too keen to correct her wrongs from last time and just kept on And made another digging. mistake, yeah. 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 Um, but I think that it's, as a if we're being charitable as a new Minister, she perhaps will have learnt a lot from this um, and that perhaps next time to double think your instincts with some yeah, of those things. Yeah, you'd think she would have learnt though and then thought twice before she called Richard Griffin and left that voicemail yeah. message. And we don't know the exact words on it, so it's very hard to judge us on the rights or wrongs of what she said in it without hearing the words ourselves The fact that she it. made the phone call though, is, even is, if is, she yes, outlined, even if she said, this is, this is what you could do, I think the implications from a minister is very different from the suggestion from yes. another member of the public. And, um, yeah, I, I would imagine if she could rewind that, she would not have done that. She should never have made that call, no matter no. what she said. Another minister, actually, interestingly, speaking of select committees and ministers having questions about them, is uh, I've been at the select committee today, uh, just on a side note, on... Uh, with the Environmental Protection Authority um, CEO coming back to talk about these accusations that Eugenie Sage and David Parker interfered in the sacking of the chief scientist. Now, that's something just to keep an eye on, I think, because it's interesting. Um, there was, while they were in opposition, they clearly were not happy with the chief scientist. There's been what was described today as a vicious social, bull social media bullying campaign of the former chief scientist, Jacqueline Roweth, um, and she did, uh, w did have an exit uh, package of sorts to leave the EPA. I think there are some questions around there around what Eugenie Sage and David Parker, what message they were sending to the EPA about her role uh, and whether it was about her science or whether it was about whether she should stay on in that job. And I think that's one of those little slow burner stories that some questions will continue to go on about um, and, and to see what, yeah. Another example of a minister having to go back exactly. and correct the Yes, she had to correct record. her record on this and, in fact, changed entirely who she'd even had a meeting with, which was strange. And I think this all comes back to new ministers perhaps being a bit overwhelmed by the job, uh, making sort of baby step mistakes, but they need to be careful. And it's important to point out it's not unusual for, for, for members of parliament to go back and correct the record. It does happen. But in these situations, when you're being asked questions about it, it looks as though you've got something trying to, to hide, hide something, and that's the whole yeah. implication. They're very of it. careful to say today: one, this is of course an employment issue, and two, that some of the criticism was around her scientific approach, not necessarily around her. But it is it is a bit messy, and I think these these situations, um, ministers will be learning from them, and it's not really not unusual when you have a new government either for people to be learning on some of these things yeah yeah and we'll keep learning for another <laughs> week I guess but it's been really nice to have you with us on Inside Parliament it's our weekly chat about the stories we've been covering on One News this podcast is available every Thursday evening on the One News Facebook page and check us out on your favourite podcasting app thank you yeah.